this experience has really hinged on opening up my own curiosity. I am a naturally curious person, but I was very close-minded about these topics. And opening that up is really what allowed me to get, you know, get to the heart of why is housing so expensive, which was an issue I cared about for a long time without really knowing where to start. And also really opened up this whole new world of how we could make our communities so much more prosperous and connected and environmentally sustainable. And I could just go on and on. I mean, it touches so many things. Hey, I'm glad you're here. This is Choose to be Curious, a show all about curiosity. We talk about research and theory, but mostly it's conversations about how curiosity shows up in work and life. I'm your host, Lynn Borton. Welcome. Come, choose to be curious with us. It turns out COVID is really bad for radio and podcast production. I'll just apologize up front for my lingering raspy voice. Believe it or not, this is better than it's been in weeks. But COVID or no, curiosity marches on. In recent months, I've been thinking a lot about curiosity and our resistance to change. Mario Livio, an astrophysicist and science communicator extraordinaire, author of Why, What Makes Us Curious, says curiosity is the best remedy for fear. Inspired by that insight, I cast about for someone who might be game to talk with me about what that looks like in real life. And I settled on a local housing advocate, Luca Gattoni-Celli, for a conversation about viewing the world with fresh eyes. We met up by phone for an exploratory call and then decided there was plenty to discuss and jumped right into recording. My name is Luca Gattoni-Celli. I'm the founder of Yimbies of Northern Virginia. Yimby stands for Yes in My Backyard. We are a chapter of Yimby Action, a national network of grassroots pro-housing groups. And our vision for Northern Virginia is one where everyone can afford a good home. And the way we do that is by changing housing policy and other policies that support it, like transportation policy, to make our region welcoming and preserve the incredible cultural diversity that we have. So first of all, Luca, I want to thank you for joining me for an impromptu conversation. And we'll apologize to our audience at the start that we're both kind of regaining our literal voices. Yes. But some of this conversation is also about finding a figurative voice and and using curiosity in that process. So thank you for being game to do this kind of in the moment. Oh, man, my pleasure. It's so nice to speak with you, Lynn. And yes, discovering urbanism definitely felt kind of like finding my voice. There was a moment where I realized, yes, this is what I will dedicate the rest of my life to. So tell me that origin story, because when we were talking before we hit record here, you talked about it in terms of this journey of taking a look at something with new eyes, which was exactly where I thought maybe this conversation would be as a kind of curiosity journey. So tell us that story. Well, sure. So we'll have to cut to like March of 2021. I was starting to think more about topics like rail transport and, you know, the things that urbanists love to talk about. And so 
I want to do this in a respectful way that doesn't feel exploitive because I never met him and I've never met his family. But in early April, I was asked, um, did you know Jim Pagels? So Jim Pagels, who hopefully this interview helps preserve his memory, who, again, I never met. He was an urbanist in D.C., a young guy, only a year younger than me, and he was killed on a bicycle and in near Union Station. That's basically downtown. And I had a lot of mutual acquaintances with him. And we were very similar in some ways, although he's an amazing person. I wouldn't compare myself to him, but uh, he was very brilliant. So that's one difference. But we were both free market economics backgrounds. I studied that in school and he was doing a PhD, I believe. And he also was really passionate about urbanism and housing policy. I had been superficially... I would say, interested in housing expense as a problem in America because for a few years, just for the obvious reason that it's such a big, it's such a defining feature of your life where you live and having stable housing is so important economically and in all the other ways. But I was only just getting into understanding the policy drivers of that and learning that it really is a policy choice. It's not like Housing's just getting more expensive. We don't know why. We actually do, which we'll get into later probably. But learning about Jim and his background and what an amazing person he was, really truly unique, made me think more critically about things that I had been dismissive of in the past. So before I thought that bike lanes, for example, were just this kind of hippy dippy waste of time and money. And now they're my favorite thing and I think they should be everywhere. And actually, urbanism did help me rediscover my love of cycling, which is a great gift. So in that, that's the sense in which this experience has really hinged on opening up my own curiosity. I am a naturally curious person, but I was very close-minded about these topics. And opening that up is really what allowed me to get, you know, get to the heart of why is housing so expensive, which is an issue I cared about for a long time without really knowing where to start. And also really opened up this whole new world of how we could make our communities so much more prosperous and connected and environmentally sustainable. And I could just go on and on. I mean, it touches so many things. <laughs> so give me a really tight, concise definition of urbanism. Urbanism is, according to the ultimate source of human knowledge, Wikipedia, <laughs> the study of the built environment and how people interact with it. And so one of the things that's interesting about things that are around us, the systems and the literal structures around us, is that often we don't really see them. We don't really... Mm -hmm understand them. We don't really question them because it's like a fish in water, right? I mean, it's just Absolutely. where we swim. So is a part of urbanism kind of coming at those systems with fresh eyes? I mean, is that part of the idea or is that just your approach to the idea? A hundred percent, a hundred percent. Okay. So, so we were talking earlier about how urbanism is an a rare topic, maybe in American context. I don't know if it's different in Europe or Asia. I imagine it's different in Japan, which has a really unique built environment and really unique national zoning system. But in the United States, urbanism is a topic where you could be really highly educated 
you could have gone a lot of places, done a lot of things, and you could be really a leader in your field even, and just have not the first idea about transportation networks, how they really work, or housing policy and land use and how all of those things interact. Mm-hmm. So give me an example. Well, so let's talk about bike lanes for a second. If you have a, a road, right, a right of way where there's two lanes in each direction, and let's pretend for the sake of argument that one of the lanes in each direction is for cars and one is like a dedicated bus lane that bikes can go on to. You might look at that and think that it would really be better for everyone if we just had all four lanes for cars. But what you do by having a mixture of uses in that context is you give people options. So there's this there's this concept called induced demand and I'm not going to I'm not going to try to dig too deep, but the basic idea is as you add more car lanes, driving on the road isn't priced in any way, congestion isn't priced in any way except for you wasting your time and your gasoline. Mm-hmm. If you drive a gas car, the capacity that's added to the system will then just get filled up again. There's never, you're never going to build a large enough highway system. The traffic's just going to go away to kind of bring it full circle. Most people just look at that system and say, oh, well, that seems like really inefficient. We should just have it all be for cars and everyone can, you know, it's very convenient and what have you. You don't think, for example, are there a lot of people, even in our community here in Northern Virginia, who can't afford a car? Right. You don't right. think about what about the kids who want to bike around their neighborhood? What do they do? They're not supposed to bike on the sidewalk. I don't want my kids biking in the street, even near where I live. It's really fast and hilly and dark in certain places. So it's it's just questioning the status quo. Uh-huh. Well, you know, I'm reminded of the expression, where you stand depends on where you sit. Sure. (laughs) And for me, this has been an interesting question because for more than 35 years, I lived in a single family home. And two years ago, I moved uh, just a mile away, but to a condo building. Mm -hmm. And it's been really interesting to realize what kinds of assumptions or communication is made about where people live and what kinds of services or amenities are available to whom under what circumstances. And so I really began to open my eyes to what it was like to live in a community in a multifamily dwelling as opposed to in a single family dwelling. And I happen to live in Arlington in a community where more people live in multifamily dwellings than in single family dwellings, but much more space is taken over by people in those single family dwellings. And and I realized that I suddenly, like I was suddenly curious about all sorts of things that it never occurred to me to be curious about. So that became sort of my own curiosity practice on this, right? And I wonder, are there curiosity practices that you yourself have found yourself using or that you encourage other people to use in sort of that think about it differently lens? So for your listeners who don't live in Arlington, maybe I can add a little flavor to what you just said. So Arlington and actually Alexandria, where I live, are the rare counties. There's only about 19 of them, I want to say, in the United States where most people do not live in a single family home. Mm -hmm. And actually the vast majority of Arlington residents are renters as well. 
but on 80% of Arlington's scarce residential land, it's actually the smallest county in the country, only detached single family homes are legally permitted. So that's kind of the context of what Lynn, you were talking about there. Right. To your question about a curiosity framework for thinking about the built environment, what that brings to mind for me is when I think about the neighborhoods that I particularly enjoy and my wife, who's my definitely my better half, has always been really attracted to before either of us got really into urbanism or knew anything about it. So we used to live in a beautiful neighborhood called Del Rey in Alexandria. It's a streetcar suburb, which means it was built up around a streetcar line. A lot of people's favorite neighborhoods, especially suburban neighborhoods, are streetcar suburbs that are about 100 years old now. The west side of Del Rey is quite dense, actually. It's more than 10,000 people per square mile. There's certainly a number of duplexes and such, but a lot of it's just the garden apartments that are there. We used to live in one. We brought our, our daughter, first child, home to it. But it's just that the, the lots are small. So in a lot of neighborhoods, the minimum lot size is really big. Things are kind of spread out. So when I think about those neighborhoods like Del Rey, or I used to live in Courthouse where you lived in Arlington, it's Courthouse is very built up and has a lot of tall buildings, but it does have this nice feel of connectedness to the people around you. And there's wonderful little hidden gems like FA 75 on Wilson Boulevard. I think about those neighborhoods and when people are railing against, oh, this new apartment building will come in and change the character of the neighborhood totally and ruin the neighborhood or people worry about their neighborhood changing, the most desirable places to live, certainly in the DC region and my favorite neighborhoods, tend to be these places where people are closer together and there's a sense of being around other people that you don't really have in a traditional suburb. And people don't realize that if their neighborhoods were allowed to evolve in that way, they'd still be really quiet and they'd feel like a community and they'd feel like home. It's actually a lot closer to the way that our great grandparents and grandparents grew up with neighbors and a sense of belonging and being necessary where you live. So that's how I think about that. You're listening to Choose to be Curious, a show all about curiosity, mostly conversations about how curiosity shows up in work and life. I'm your host, Lynn Borton. Today, I'm joined by local housing advocate, Luca Gattoni-Celli, to talk about urbanism. It's a study of the built environment and how people interact with it. And what we're digging into is learning to view the world with fresh eyes. So if all the various sides in what often becomes the debate around urbanism, you know, in one community for one reason or another, if everybody were to come to those discussions with curiosity, what would be different about those conversations? So I don't, I don't want to play a game here where I'm like the morally superior person who's no, I'm just asking you, like, you know, if you come to it with curiosity, right? So one of the things that, that urbanism threw into really sharp relief for me is that without getting into car auto dependency and transportation policy and all that, 
a lot of people who live in a community, even a prosperous region like Northern Virginia, which I live where I live and I love to live here, there's a lot of lower income people who maybe can't afford a car, certainly can't afford two, and who really are just kind of getting by. And as we learned during the pandemic, a lot of those essential workers really are essential. I mean, you know, my day job is a business researcher, basically. I could go home and stay home and society was just fine with that. <laughs> but if the people who work in the grocery store, the firefighters, the police officers, the teachers, mm -hmm. I know that kind of opens up a can of worms, but if the teachers are stuck at home and the kids are stuck at home, society really could not function. And we treat these people like we being the, you know, 30% or so, or third of the population who go to college and have the good life here in America. We act like those people are just kind of this pool of labor that just kind of churns and, you know, whatever happens to them, we're not really aware of it. And maybe when we're driving to Target, we see someone biking along the sidewalk and we think, oh, I'm glad I don't have to do that. And that's kind of it. And you know, those are the people who keep society going. And it turns out they're not replaceable. We found that right. out right. during the pandemic. And the reason I'm bringing the conversation in this direction is because most cities in America, 70% of the land is, it is illegal to build an apartment building, a condo building, a duplex, a townhouse, anything except for a detached single family home. And often the minimum lot sizes are pretty big, which makes it more expensive, which is deliberate. These policies were designed to keep working class people and often, honestly, African-American people and non-white residents out of most of the neighborhoods in our cities in America. Right now, I don't want to get too political, but it's, it's important to talk about. We are all starting to become victims of that system, unless you're truly independently wealthy, your real wealth, it's really hard to yeah. afford a new place to live in the parts of the United States with economic opportunity, with good jobs. One or both of you are commuting a long way, at least 30 minutes or an hour each way. Now that the system isn't really working for anyone, all of a sudden it's a real problem that we need to take seriously. Whereas for decades, this same basic dynamic has been making life more and more untenable for the majority of Americans. So there's this bigger conversation that's happening now, but it's because the people who always have the quote unquote bigger conversation are starting to be personally affected. That's why it's in the New York Times and the Atlantic, instead of just being this once in a blue moon curiosity where everyone kind of thinks, oh, that's so sad. They just kind of move on now i mean it's tearing our it's like making it impossible for anyone to have a good life well, you make a great case for the importance of just kind of looking up looking around and and sort of asking the questions about like well who's benefiting here who's burdened by this and then also like well, what are all the ways we could mm -hmm. you know a sort of opening of options as opposed to a closing of options or or an un, unwillingness to sort of look at a status quo and go, hmm, maybe this worked 
for some of us for a while, but now it's not working for most of us at all. So what might we do differently? That's curiosity practice right there. Yeah, absolutely. I don't want to suggest I have everything figured out, but <laughs> none of us do. You know, the way my the way my family lives is maybe a more reproducible model than sprawl, 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 and people having to relocate hundreds of miles just to have a home. There's a lot of research showing that that's really starting to hamper our economy. Whenever someone says, oh, just move. So not only are you tearing up your, your roots in your community, but it turns out it's not good for the economy to just force people to move. <laughs> uh, <laughs> surprise, surprise. But let me go back to, so our, I'll talk about our situation a little bit. I have to admit here, you know, I got help, a lot of help from my parents to be able to even live here. So I'm not going to pretend that I earned everything that we have, right? Um, but honestly, that's really not to justify myself too much, but that's that's another aspect of this. That What I just told you, that is pretty common in my cohort and people don't really talk about it. Well, that goes back to your point about urbanism being built around systems that we're unaware of, right? That a lot of it depends on intergenerational wealth. Exactly. So where we live is somewhat unique because again, you know, most of Alexandria, you cannot build anything but a detached single family home. We live in a townhouse development. It's pretty nice. The homes remain around 2000. I wrote an essay about living near the largest apartment complex in Northern Virginia. And to me, it illustrates that that people kind of fear what they don't understand because the four ways that affects my life are sometimes there are car horns in the parking lot, not very often. Sometimes the air conditioning is really loud in the summer of the building. I live walking distance to a grocery store, which is something I cared about even before I knew anything about urbanism because when it snows, it totally cripples our area. And um, there's an amazing Ethiopian restaurant down the street by a chef who trained in Europe. And other than that, if I didn't see the building, I wouldn't know it was there. So I think people should be more open-minded about living in a different set of circumstances than they're used to. Because they might find, as I have, that it's more good than bad. So I didn't warn you of this. I want to invite you to uh, join me in the Big Jar of Wannabe Analogies, which is full of these little slips of paper. And they have random words on them. And we're going to make an analogy to curiosity with whatever is on these slips of paper. So I have one for awesome. you, <laughs> one for me, and one for our audience. So yours is paintbrush. How is curiosity like a paintbrush? And mine is sneezing. Oh, how appropriate. How is curiosity like sneezing? Do you want to go first or do you want me to go? Um, I could go. Okay. So how is curiosity like a paintbrush? So one of the reasons that my wife is my better half is that she's a lot better at painting than I am. <laughs> um, it's surprisingly hard, or maybe I'm just really uniquely bad at it, but trying to get the paint to do what you want is surprisingly difficult. And so to me, that illustrates that when you're when you're looking at something and you're trying to apply curiosity to it or trying to understand it, sometimes you don't make a lot of headway 
like I mentioned, for about two or three years, I'd been interested in how, in how expensive housing was and why that was the case. I even asked, oh, well, could we convert office buildings to apartments? Turns out it's really complicated. But I was made some efforts here and there to kind of dig into it, never really made any headway. And it took a very random turn of events, which I described earlier with the passing of Jim Pagels, may he rest in peace, that I really kind of opened things up. Mm. Um, I would say it's hard to say exactly how everything got started, but yeah, that to me is how curiosity is like a paintbrush. It doesn't always go the way you think it will, <laughs> at least for me. <laughs> that that's wonderful thank you and i love the way you tied in all sorts of different pieces there good good job good job so mine is sneezing how is curiosity like sneezing hmm. well i guess i'll say uh for one it can be it can kind of take you by surprise it can be a little explosive something we're really attentive to in the last couple of years it's also a vector for contagion and i think like sneezing sudden expression of, of curiosity has a kind of contagious effect. You're going to have to edit me out like chortling because that is really something. <laughs> um, and audience, yours is crayon. How is curiosity like a crayon? Let me know. Facebook, Twitter, hashtag analogy. Well, Luca, thank you so much for this. You know, I reached out and I didn't really know where we were going to go with this, but I really appreciate how you've kind of joined me on this curiosity adventure. So thank you. Oh, it was so fun. Let's do it again. You've been listening to Choose to be Curious. Find this and all my previous episodes at choosetobecurious.com. I hope you'll follow me there and on social media. And don't forget to send us your crayon analogy, hashtag analogy. Many thanks to my very spontaneous guest, Luca Gattonicelli. Links to Yimby of Northern Virginia on my website. Thanks, too, to Sean Ballack for our theme music. And this is City Limits by Albany, New York, via Blue Dot Sessions. I hope you'll join me again next time. Until then, choose to be curious. So let me ask you, is there anything that we haven't talked about on this intersection of urbanism and curiosity that you would really want to say here? So I'm sure that your listeners are really concerned about climate change and climate policy and and efficient energy use and sustainability and just about the worst thing we could do as a society is to continue to only grow by sprawling out and cutting down forests and repurposing farmland. Here's the story. Here, I want to make something super clear. I think there's a common misconception that someone who's really passionate about urbanism likes me, like me, thinks everyone should live a certain way. It is the case that unless we allow people who want to live a more affordable, dense, walkable, sustainable lifestyle. Unless we allow those people to do that, we are not going to figure out climate change. Not possible. If you're curious about, hey, how are we actually going to solve the climate crisis? We have to make more efficient use of land or we are not 
going to full stop 